0: Hello. I love you, Daddy, and I love you, Dadu, and, and I'll never forget the first time I watched this video. There's a little boy, he's about two, he's super cute and he has these huge, beautiful brown eyes. He's smiling and giggling as his mum coaxes him to say a few words. His name is Salman.
1: (laughs) Salman, Salman, and? I, I.
0: It's a phone video for Salman's grandparents, his daddy and dadu. They're thousands of miles away in England. It was a rare and precious glimpse of their first grandchild.
1: And come on, come on, and Sulman, and
0: They had never met Sulman, not in person. Videos like this one, a few photos, a few phone calls and messages were all they had. And so they treasured them. Sulman and his mother Aisha, that's her in the video, were in Syria. A country being ripped apart by war. This video was one of the last Sulman and Aisha sent. Not long after it arrived, the messages stopped. No more videos, no more photos, no more calls. No one knew what had become of Salman.
2: Love... That was late
0: 2018. It's now been almost five years and still no one knows. Right, okay, so... I'm going to take the vest, the helmet, the ballistic glasses and the trauma kit? Yeah, that's correct. Right, okay the highest protection you get. OK, oh, God. Blimey, they, they are heavy.
2: It's
0: about 2.4. Out in the Syrian desert, there are two sprawling camps, tense cities, surrounded by barbed wire and guarded by armed soldiers. They're remnants of one of the most brutal regimes on Earth, the so-called Islamic State, IS, what the world once called ISIS. The terror group was largely defeated in 2019. Thousands of its members were killed. The men who were captured were imprisoned. And most of the women and children were placed in these camps. I think when I get home, I'm just gonna try it on again. Yeah. So I can get it on and off really fast. I'll just get used to taking it on and off, really. Yeah, I think that's weight, what it just is. the weight of it. I know, exactly. I've reported from these camps before. What struck me most were the children, thousands of them, children from all corners of the world, some born into IS, others brought there, all now imprisoned for the actions of their parents. I'm preparing to go back to these camps, to visit these kids again and report on what they're living through, to find out what will become of them and if Fulman is to be found, if he's still alive. These camps are the place to start looking. Okay, so it's a trauma kit, helmet, ballistic glasses, yeah. and a vest. I've kitted up like this before, but this trip, it's going to be different. Yeah, so, that's great, thank you, Gizzy. Have a
2: safe trip, and uh, any issues, give us a call.
0: Yeah, thank you. Okay. see you then.
2: See you later.
0: Along with my flat jacket, my helmet, my recorder and notebooks and maps, I'm also carrying an envelope with photos of a little boy no-one has heard from in nearly five years. My name's Poonam Tanager. From BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts, this is Bloodlines.
2: Well, I just, just want him back home and just to... just to be a, a normal grandparent to him, to love him, cater for him, and...
0: That's Salman's grandfather, Ash. He's a bus driver from East London. This is from a TV interview with him, shortly after the videos and photos of Salman stopped arriving. What is your concern at the moment about Salman?
2: Uh, Concern is locating him um, and finding out his well-being, where he is, if he's by himself, unaccompanied.
0: At the time, coalition forces were bombing the last remaining territory IS held in Syria, exactly where Ash believed Sulman and his mother Aisha were. Ash was certain Sulman was still alive.
2: He could be lying injured in hospital bed or a camp or whatever.
0: Ash was worried his grandson was lost in one of the desert prison camps. At the time, they were filling up with orphans and widows. And so, back in London, he was doing everything he could to get people to care and to help him find his grandson.
2: You know, accessing the innocent children. So, it's basically.
0: I've covered IS for the BBC for the past decade stories of young people from the UK who travel to the region and join the group. And I was one of the first to report on Ash's story, Salman's story. It got some play for a while, this cute kid lost in the chaos of war. A few papers picked it up, but interest whittled away pretty quickly. There just wasn't much sympathy for Ash or his missing grandson. And so, before long, the world moved on. And actually, most of Ash's family moved on too. But Ash... Ash never did. Hey, hi, Ash.
2: Hello, good nice to meet you again.
0: How are you?
2: I'm good to see you again.
0: Are you comfortable being here and, and chatting here? Yeah, it's a really bit of a secluded talk. park. It's quiet though, yeah, yeah, take Maybe a seat. It's a Friday night in mid-November 2022. Ash looks older, more tired than I remember. The park we're meeting is cold and eerie. Meeting here, on a bench in the dark, is Ash's idea. He doesn't want his wife, or anyone in his family, to know. What's happening? How have you been?
2: I've been good. I've been good. Just waiting for some good news to come through.
0: Ash has his phone in his hand. And soon enough, he's showing me photos of someone. Salman in traditional Arab dress, another in a blue T-shirt with a shark on it. He's a smiley, happy kid. But then Ash swipes to another photo. Salman's smile is gone. There's a bandage on his forehead. He looks scared and emaciated.
2: This is the one I have, yeah.
0: I've seen it before. I've seen most of these photos before. The videos, too. Ash has shared them with me. But today, there's one I haven't seen.
1: Where did
2: the
1: donkey go? He's got you, Where did it go? Mm. No,
0: didn't go to China. Where's, Where's Baba? Baba, baby. Baba. Man, mm? look at me. Mm. Where did the donkey go? Mm? Where did the donkey go? Yeah. Where did it go? I didn't know. No, do not go to
2: Jannah. <laughs> Where's Baba? Baba in Jannah.
0: Salman is lying in a cot, draped with a mosquito net, and what he's saying is that Baba, his father, Ash's son, is in Jannah. Jannah is paradise in Islam, the afterlife.
2: Really. Papa Really? Papa Adela.
1: Papa
0: Papa. When you look at that, how do you feel?
2: Yeah. That's my son's son and he looks exactly like him.
0: Ash's son, Sulman's father was named Haroon. Haroon grew up here in East London. Right here, in fact, he played in this park as a boy.
2: We used to come here. We'd done rollerblading here. We'd done play tennis here. And generally, yeah, like on hot days, we'd have ice cream. I remember when they were really young.
0: That- but in 2013, Haroon secretly uh-huh. left the UK for Syria, where he ended up fighting for IS. He also met Aisha who would travel there from Canada. They married, and Aisha gave birth to Salman in 2016. Later that year, Haroon was killed by a sniper in Syria. He was 21. Ash and his wife tried to convince Aisha to leave Syria with Salman, but she didn't. I've covered a lot of stories about British citizens who've become foreign fighters. But the Brits who left for Syria and Iraq to live under IS, it was like nothing I'd seen before, nothing anyone had seen. IS had this knack, this savvy ability to sell the idea of a perfect Islamic utopia. And it appealed to a lot of young men, but also a lot of young women, and sometimes even entire families. When we first met back in 2019, it was about February, March, I think, and it had just been recently that you'd lost touch with your grandson, Salman. Yeah. So I remember chatting to you and you were convinced at that time that Salman was alive. Yeah. What about now?
2: Um, See, so the thing is, until somebody says otherwise, nobody stated, shown a body. Yeah, that's proof and that's clear cut to say, well, you know what, all your efforts, they're going to be in vain. But we've not come to that stage yet.
0: But time has gone on. Do you yeah. not think that if he was alive, you would have known by now?
2: But the thing is, the reality is, I don't really know. I'll accept it if somebody gives me clear-cut proof. Up until then, you live in hope. When you have ambiguity, it's, it's a chance. It's not 100%, it's not zero, there is a chance. So you're living on that chance. And, and other children have been rescued, that's factual. So that's kind of like supporting the chance that you're willing to take, because that's your blood. And, you know, you do anything and everything for your blood.
0: There's a detail I should mention. Shortly after Salman went missing, Asher's family got a strange text. It said Aisha had been killed. But it was from a woman Ash had never heard of before. A complete stranger. And it was suspicious too, because it was encrypted and there were absolutely no details, including no mention of Salman. It wasn't nearly enough for Ash to give up hope. He knows that children did survive, even when their parents were killed. And many of them ended up in these camps I'm going to. Some of the women in these camps have even told me they've looked after unaccompanied children, or know women who did. So is it unlikely I'll find Salman? Yeah, probably. Is it totally impossible? No. I do absolutely not want to get your hopes up. I really don't. I will ask around, I'll do whatever I can, but. It is, and I have to tell you it's it's like it's going to be like searching for a needle in a haystack.
2: yeah, so we'll just leave it at that and just go with the right motivations and do your best and then we'll just see what comes off it. That's all we can actually do because you're willing to go out there and i'm I'm very grateful that not too many people do that. So I can't thank you enough. Um, And then we'll see what your efforts bring about.
0: I can't promise to find Salman, but what I think Hash is hoping for, what I think he really needs, What I think I have a better chance of helping him find is just to finally know what happened to his grandson. Thousands of people like Ash. Grandparents whose sons and daughters ran off to live under IS. And whose grandchildren are now in the camps. They're from all over the world. Britain, Canada, Trinidad, Australia, Belgium, China, Tunisia, Sudan. Floor three. Door open. I've spoken to a lot of them. There's so much shame and fear within these families and so little sympathy outside them. So Ash, talking to me on the record, he's an exception. And so is Charlene. Hi. Hi Charlene. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Not too bad. You're looking good. Charlene Jack-Henry is an emergency nurse. She lives on the edge of a council estate in West London. I've been speaking with her for the past few years too. It'll be So close. So close. Charlene's been cooking her favorite dishes, and her flat smells absolutely amazing. On one wall, there's a photo of Charlene's eldest daughter, Nicole. She's wearing a blue shift dress and long white evening gloves. Nicole looks like a young woman who's going places. But her life took a dark turn.
1: The doorbell rang and I answered the doorbell and then it was uh, like three police officers and they said, oh, just can we come in? So they came upstairs and then they told me that and they had information that she and the whole family were, were in Cyprus and they thought that they were going to Syria.
0: Nicole told Charlene she was moving to Somalia with her husband and their four kids. Really, they were on their way to live under IS. She's been gone for so
1: long now.
0: Charlene hasn't seen Nicole or her grandkids in more than seven years. And today, the day I'm visiting her flat, is especially poignant.
1: I think it just, it just got to me and that it's another birthday passing. She's 36 years old today. Wow.
0: Mm. You've missed a lot. Mm -hmm. She's... Yeah, I
1: have. So much because when she left, she was in her twenties. Now she's in her mid thirties.
0: And there are pictures of Charlene's grandkids on her walls too, from when they were much younger. If the tragedy for Ash is not knowing, the tragedy for Charlene is knowing too much. She knows exactly what happened to her grandkids. They're stuck in one of the camps along with Nicole. That's no place for them kids to grow up.
1: And my fear is that um, leaving them there will only create a bigger problem for this world because if you leave kids in a place where violence and that is normalised, then you'd just
0: be creating a a big problem. Charlene hopes that talking to the media, talking to me, might put pressure on the British government to bring them back.
1: I want them out of that place, but it seems so hopeless. It seems that they've just been
0: abandoned by the British government. But what preoccupies Charlene most of the time are the day-to-day worries. What her grandkids are eating, the lack of clean water and sanitation, the lack of health care, one of them needs an EpiPen, the constant risk of violence. And the fact that all of this is getting worse, and quickly. You
1: know, sometimes I think, maybe I'll never see them again. Maybe they'll just die out there.
0: The last time I was in Syria, I interviewed Nicole and her kids. This time, I'm hoping to do the same. Charlene, do you want me to pass a message on?
1: just tell them that I'm I'm here if they can't speak for themselves I will always speak for them and if it comes to fighting for them I will fight for them I have that in me too because it seems nobody else is willing to but I'll do it
0: leave Charlene's flat. I'm struck by all the other families here in London, whose bloodlines have been stolen by IS, who don't want to speak out about it or feel they can't. Charlene's neighbourhood was home to one of the group's most brutal cells. That image you have of a masked executioner standing behind a kneeling prisoner, that man was part of a group of men who lived just a couple of miles down the road. Their hostages call them the Beatles because of their British accents. Together, they were responsible for beheading several journalists and aid workers. And they came to symbolize the barbarity of Islamic State group. Okay, see you You in three weeks, darling.
2: Love you. Love you, too. Have a good trip. Thank you,
0: sweetheart. That's one of my boys. It's the night before my flight. I've just reminded him where the paperwork is. That's the euphemism I use for my will. This is one of the hardest parts of a trip like this. Okay, and I'll send you pictures if I can. Yes,
2: And you do the same? Yeah,
0: I will do. Okay, see you, darling. Bye. Love you. you. We have a family WhatsApp group. I'll check in daily and post photos on the road. Quirky stuff, light stuff. But I probably won't speak with my boys for the next few weeks. And I definitely won't tell them about any near misses and skirmishes. It always feels a bit dysfunctional, really. Compartmentalising my two lives like this. I call it going into reporter mode. It's a coping mechanism, and it's kicking into high gear in the hours before I fly. Thank
2: you. And Good morning, dear guests. Welcome aboard of Austrian flights to Vienna.
0: We also welcome it's going to be a long couple of days. From Vienna, I'll fly on to Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. From there, I'll cross the border and meet up with my team in northeast Syria. We'll be there for more than three weeks. It'll be me, a local journalist who'll also be our driver, a medic was once with the special Forces
2: in city. So we will be in Deirik, name-
0: and my producer Juan Abdi.
2: Driving to volt to Hasakah city which is the, it's the main city of the province Has northeast Syria. <laughs> what-
0: Juan's based in Europe, but he's originally from Syria and he's covered the rise and fall of IS extensively. He's left ahead of me to meet Kurdish security officials. We need their permission to access the camps where children are being held. It's a small team. We need to be agile. And we don't want to stand out.
1: We are now ready for takeoff. Please fasten your seatbelt and pull it tight. Make sure that the back of your seat is in its position.
0: A few hours later, I touch down in Vienna. I'm checking my phone. And there's a text from Johan. In the last few hours, Turkey has launched airstrikes into Syria, targeting the Kurdish forces, which guard the camps. Hey, for Hey, hey Johan, how are you?
2: Hi, hey, uh, I'm good. I mean, you know, the, well, I, I don't want to disappoint you or stress you, but they cancelled all my meetings because of the bombing. Oh, and, no. Um, yeah, I now the kind of you know, emergency things here. The bombs that was near the rig is about, like, 15 kilometres. So nine people got killed. One of them is a local journalist, also three injured people. So just to keep you posted about this.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for doing that. So okay. it's 15 kilometres from where we were going to stay and where you were staying, right? Yes. OK. All right, then, Juwan. Keep me updated. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Keep me updated. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hang up the phone, trying to figure out what this means for the trip, for the story. Then it really hits me. Nine people dead, three injured, not far from Juwan. Just before we take off, I called Joanne back, but it goes to voicemail. Hey Joanne, uh, just a quick um, message to you. We're just about to board. Listen, uh, please do be very, very careful. Don't take any risks out there for this, okay? It's all fine. Okay, speak soon. Next time on Bloodlines. It looks like actually hundreds of children are buried here. You know, I'm lost for words, actually. It really is a race against time to bring them back. You've been listening to Bloodlines from BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts. The series' concept and reporting... By me, Poonam Teenager. It's written and produced by Fiona Woods and Alina Ghosh. Our investigations producer is Juwan Abdi, and our contributing producer is Michelle Shepherd. Fahad Fattah is our field producer. Our sound designer is Julia Whitman. Original score by Phil Channel. Emily Cannell is a digital coordinating producer for CBC Podcasts, and Caroline McAvoy is a digital producer for BBC Sounds. Our senior producer and story editor is Damon Fairless for CBC Podcasts. Executive editor for BBC Sounds is James Cook. The executive producers of CBC Podcasts are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts and Arif Nurani is the director. Claire McGinn is the executive director of BBC's Creative Development Unit. BBC commissioner is Ahmed Hussain head of the BBC Asian Network. Thank you for listening to Bloodlines.